Hello everyone and welcome back to Down the Line. This is episode number 95 recording here on Friday evening of uh, April 7th. I got uh, joined here with Kyle Betts along with myself, Brevin Honda. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing well. Thank you, Brevin. Uh, it's been a good week. It's been a while since we talked, obviously, with so much has happened in between, what, the nine days of our uh, like episode? Yeah. Um, it's been a while, but definitely excited for this one uh, because we're going to break it all down with uh, one of our good friends who was really able to experience it all and more this past weekend in terms of what happened all over the sports calendar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got um, joining here for the fifth time uh, from what we talked about just before we hit uh, started recording. We've got a uh, he's a former classmate of ours at San Diego City. He was a coworker of ours at the Daily Aztec. A former arts editor, arts and culture editor for the Daily Aztec. He's also now an an Emmy award winning producer at NBC Seven, and he's the current host of the podcast on the record welcome back devin watley how are you doing devin doing great guys glad to be back G- crazy fifth five times wow i mean just incredible yeah mm-hmm. how's uh how clean are you keeping uh the emmy award um i got i have well you know the like i mentioned before in the past episodes i mean they put it in a little box thing so i always have it in a box saran wrapped and then i try not to keep it out too much because then it just starts collecting dust yeah mm-hmm. all right we are going to um, Devin's going to be here. He went to Houston, so we're going to talk about his experience um, throughout the show. He also talked with Kyle on Devin's podcast on the record, uh, episode number 27, which just came out a couple weeks ago. Devin, uh, you want to talk a little bit about what you and Kyle talked about on, on the record? Yeah, so Kyle and I, we talked about his sort of journey through his journalism career going from San Diego State to ASU to the job he has now in Bakersfield and obviously like the, 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 the challenges of, you know, starting out in a smaller market and how he's been able to grow through that. So we kind of just talked about these different threads and how they connect now. Um, like I said, a lot of uh, exciting, you know, if you're somebody who's, who's aspiring to be into journalism or wanting to get into the field, it's great stuff because we got a lot of good advice that we share in that episode. So of course, give it a watch. <laughs> Tell everyone, Devin, where they can listen to um, that episode. Yeah, so On The Record Podcast, you can just type search On The Record with Devin Watley on any podcast streaming app of choice. Also, don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram at On The Record Pod. That's where usually all the latest episodes and um, updates will be at. Mm-hmm. You can also follow Devin on Twitter at Devin Watley for all of his things that he is up to date. Uh, Devin also works at NBC7, um, like you mentioned, winning the Emmy um, part of that company. Devin, how is... How has NBC7 been over the last few months since we talked to you? Last oh, time? it's been fantastic. I mean, and, and, and you know, in the news field, things are always changing. So we've been having a lot of changes recently, new people coming in, new people coming out. So it's been like kind of this exciting mix because you have people like me who have been there for two years. Now we're almost kind of seen as like the, the, the people who've been there for a while, even though I haven't at all. So um, we have a lot of different changes going on, but it's it's exciting. You know, it's a very exciting time. We've put in good news. The ratings are good. Um, things are good. So I mean, I'm, of course, I'm, I'm happy to be at uh, NBC7. All right, we are going to get into the Fast Five now, where we go from Kyle's location up in Bakersfield. We're going to go a little bit further up the Five Freeway, where we're going to kick things off in the NBA. The Sacramento Kings, they clinched a playoff spot for the first time in 17 years 
dating back to 2006. It's not the longest playoff drought among the four American sports, the NFL, the NHL, and MLB as well. The longest current drought now belongs to the New York Jets at 12 seasons, followed by the Buffalo Sabres in the National Hockey League at 10 seasons. And then at eight years, you got the Angels and the Tigers both in Major League Baseball. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, light the beam. What more can you say? This is a really good team. Tonight, they are playing the Warriors, currently down by 12 in the first quarter. But that's because they're only playing, I believe, one starter, and that's Harrison Barnes. So this team, you know, when they're at full strength, is really different. I mean, they made a lot of moves to make this team team really well-balanced. I think that all starts with De'Aaron Fox, obviously, how he's panned out. Uh, you know, from, you know, their draft pick early on in, in his career, and then also for the trade that they made uh, recently involving DeMontis Sabonis, what he's been able to bring to the table since he arrived there last season. I mean, he is a perennial all-star caliber player. He's shown it, and he's taken this team to new heights, and this is a really fun squad. It's exciting, Definitely. really exciting. Mm-hmm. I mean, just you look at, like, with what De'Aaron's been able to do since he's been a rookie there, I mean, obviously he's been on the come up, but then ever since they made that trade for with Halliburton and Sabonis, I mean, now that just adds another big defender. And, and I think the biggest thing that's really gone under the radar has been hiring Mike Brown, right? I mean, yeah. a defensive-laden coach, probably in the running for NBA Coach of the Year because, I mean, he's been doing a phenomenal job. At, I think the big thing for the Kings has been, you know, they're they're really good defense. So they've, they've, been, they've been performing all year. It's going to be exciting to see who they play in the playoffs because, I mean, people have been talking about will, will they see the Warriors in, in a possible first round. I mean, I'd like to see that. So um, yeah. hopefully we can get some exciting playoff matches. I'm, I'm happy that the Kings have finally been able to break this drought. I mean, it's it's been due. It's been due for a long time. Currently, the Kings stand at number three in the West Conference standings. They are four games back at the top spot and the number nugget two. They won't be able to catch. They are two and a half games back of the Memphis Grizzlies and three games up on uh, the uh, number four team in the Western Conference, the Phoenix Suns. All right, we're going to get back to the NBA before the conclusion of our first half. Another big week in sports includes this weekend being the Masters. Um, The second round action today was postponed um, after rain and wind and lightning um, hit the area, including Multiple trees falling during the second round of play at the tournament. Um, this was around the 17th tee box. So spectators uh, running into safety. It was a result, uh, like I mentioned, with storms rolling in through Augusta, Georgia. And in that area, fortunately, no one was injured, but play was stopped for the day. Um, there were a total of two, um, two weather delays. Uh, first one was 28 minutes, and then the first one would ultimately stop play for the rest of the day. As of right now, Brooks Kepka is the leader at 12 under par, followed by John Rahm at 9 under par, and then an amateur at Sam Bennett, who won the 2022 U.S. Amateur Championship. He is at 8 under par. Yeah, I mean, this was a crazy situation to see it all unfold the way it did. Glad that everyone came out safe because – I mean, a lot of people were in the line of danger, and they kind of had to scramble out of there. So, uh, you know, I, I think they did make the right decision by just postponing it, you know, just making sure everyone was okay. And, I mean, the storms were obviously making a difference. 
probably will for the rest of the weekend. But, yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this weather kind of impacts this tournament going forward and see if it gets worse than it did today perhaps. So um, anything can happen with that. But, Devin, did you see this or hear about it? I, I, I saw a video on Twitter kind of go viral and circulating, but I, did you catch it by chance? Yeah, we, you know, I mean, NBC, I mean, Derek Togerson, our sports anchor, he's always covering a lot of stuff. So we had the Masters on TV quite a bit. So I was I was kind of watching in and out, you know, here and there. Um, you know, I saw Xander's performance and stuff like that. So, um, you know, obviously he could have done better. But I think I like Kupka, you know, right now in that leadership spot. He's he's looking pretty good. Um, I I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, like you said, with that tree falling down, that's a big deal with a, in a golf course. So how that kind of plays a factor with the weather and how these conditions change with the wind, all these other things are going to play a big role. I'm interested to see how it sort of affects these performance of all these guys that are in the spots right now. You might see things change uh, quite a bit heading into this next this next spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was nearly 80 degrees earlier today at Augusta, Georgia. It's supposed to be down near the mid-50s tomorrow when third-round action begins. So a 30-degree drop. And you can only imagine you go from wearing short sleeve shirts on Thursday and Friday to wearing long sleeves and got to get those muscles working um, through the cooler conditions uh, in the third round or in the third day wow. of the first major tournament. Crazy. Here. All right. Something more that'll bright, brighten, that brighten the day. This came last week on Thursday. Uh, St. Louis Cardinals pitcher Adam Wainwright, uh, aka un- aka Uncle Charlie, as you know, was introduced um, via the uh, at the home opener for the Cardinals. It was introduced, even though he was not starting on Thursday. Not only was he introduced and uh, came to a raucous crowd at Bush Stadium, but then after all the teams were announced, after the rest of his teammates were announced. Well, the PA announcer for the Cardinals then said, now singing the national anthem is Adam Wainwright, a.k.a. Uncle Charlie. And did a pretty good job. Uh, he just went slow and steady singing the national anthem over two minutes. Um, Devin, what was your reaction when you when you heard about Adam Wainwright singing the national anthem? I thought it was great. You know, I was worried he might pull a Roseanne Barr, one of the worst national anthems in, in, uh, in history of America. But, I mean... He did pretty good. Two minutes, you know, he's saying it slow. Sometimes that's what you got to do if you're not a good singer. You just go a little slow. Um, I thought he was great. You know, I mean, that sort of stuff, that, that's what makes baseball great, right? You're seeing athletes do unorthodox stuff all the time and, and, and bring people together in moments like that. I mean, that guy's an icon in St. Louis. So seeing him do a national anthem, bring people together, I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, too, it's just finally here. Um in the big leagues, as he's supposedly said, the clouds change as the year goes on. But Kyle, what was your reaction when you heard about Adam Wainwright singing the national anthem on opening day? Yeah, I honestly didn't hear about this until the day after, and I was supposed to uh, produce the sports block in, in one of our segments, and I wasn't really sure what to include, but. Uh, I found some footage of him seeing this and and I was like, why not throw this in, in the show? And I, I thought it was interesting just because like Devin said, I think perfectly the, the word to use is unorthodox. 
I mean, you don't really ever see something like that. So um, a guy with, I guess, like the character of Adam Wainwright and, you know, just uh, his personality, his soul, the way that he is, um, he, he definitely stands out in St. Louis, like Devin said. So uh, it, it was cool to get that moment, um, especially for a player who's entering his last season, for him to have a little fun. Uh, on his uh, last opening day experience, I think that's what makes it all special for sure. Best part about it was none of his or some of his teammates were in shock that he was walking over to the microphone before he started <laughs> the national anthem. All right, number four on the fast five, we remain in Major League Baseball. The not, the Atlanta Braves will be t- retiring Andrew Jones' number 25 in a ceremony later this year. Um, you know, a, a, supposedly a Hall of Fame career is still on the Baseball Writers Hall of Fame ballot just past year number six, I think it was. Um, yeah. Kyle, what does it say about the Braves uh, making this move to retire number 25? Yeah, you see them, you know, retiring some players. I believe Chip, Chipper Jones most recently. Um, so, so to see them uh, make this move and retire another legendary player um, for them and Andrew Jones. I, I believe it's special um, to honor these guys uh, because obviously um, they've had such influence on them. And um, like you mentioned, he's, he's up for the hall of fame. Um, a little bit of debate, you know, kind of going around trying to determine if he should make it or not, but um, we're going to have to see, uh, like you mentioned in that decade long eligibility span. So um, it's going to be interesting to see that, but, I think, too, what's interesting is his legacy in that Drew Jones is one of the top prospects for the Diamondbacks, and he's already making plays in the minor leagues. We could see him in no time, uh, Drew Jones uh, Jr. Um, <laughs> that's going to be a lot of fun to see him pan out, too, and uh, see uh, how much he resembles Andrew Jones's play when he was on the Braves back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Drew Jones is uh, one of the Arizona Diamondbacks' top prospects. Devin, when you think about um, the type of career that Andrew Jones had over close to 2,000 hits, more than 12, uh, close to 1,300 RBIs, hit 434 home runs. We think about the defensive glove that he brought to the game. What does it say about the Braves making this move? I think it's great. You know, the Braves have had a lot of icons, especially in that that sort of decade in the 90s when they won a lot of world, you know, they won a lot of games, made a lot of World Series appearances. Um, You know, when you think of those types of Braves teams, you think of John Smoltz, you think of Tom Glavin, you think of Andrew Jones on that list, Chipper Jones. You know, all these guys are icons in that era that shouldn't be forgotten. And I think it's safe to say that it's a good thing that the Braves are retiring Andrew Jones's number because I mean he's he's going to be somebody that Braves fans are going to be you know in lore of in history you know for for a while and I think you know you know whether that argument of him making the Hall of Fame or not you know people are going to be up for debate on that but I think at the end of the day when you look at his Atlanta Braves career and what he did in that uniform wearing that number I think it's 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 only right for them to want to retire his number at this time. Mm-hmm. Part of Braves teams that want to. 14 straight National League East Division titles at one point being part of that organization. All right, we go to number five here on the Fast Five. The final point 
comes to the NCAA Women's National Championship game on Sunday. Number three, LSU took down number two, Iowa. 102.85, remember last week we talked to Amber Salas from KTIV in Iowa, where she kind of talked about Caitlin Clark and the Iowa Hawkeyes. Kyle, when you think about this game, um, what was your kind of reaction to this matchup? Yeah, to be honest, I kind of forgot this game was on, but then uh, someone texted me about it, and I was like, I got to throw this on. Like, how could I ever forget? Like, Caitlin Clark is about to cook. And then she didn't really – I mean, she had 30 points in this game, but, I mean, it was pretty much LSU the whole way. Um, a lot of tension after the game as well, uh, obviously with the controversy of uh, the celebration. And we, that's pretty much a whole different conversation. We could definitely get into that if we want to. But um, I, I think the game itself, it, it was pretty much controlled by the Tigers the whole way. They were more physical. I mean, they knocked down shots like crazy, and um, they contained Caitlin Clark because there's been performances where we've seen her drop 38, 40-plus, and um, she's making five or six, if not more, threes in, in those games. So um, the way that they were kind of able to control her and keep a solid lead the whole way, that was definitely impressive. Devin, what was your reaction to seeing LSU become the latest national champions uh, from the NCAA women's basketball? I think it was just like a matchup, like Kyle said, physical versus finesse, right? I mean, Caitlin Clark is phenomenal. She is, and she's one of the great, I think she's going to go down as one of the, you know, greatest players in NCAA, you know, in in that sort of time span of, of time where she's at right now. I think she's such a phenomenal player. And I mean, that you know, the LSU head coach, Kim Mulkey, after the game, you know, in the handshake line, she said, you're a generational player to Peyton Clark. Um, but I think it was kind of a, just a, a, a showcase of physical versus finesse. You can contain Caitlin Clark. I mean, she scored 30 points, but she took quite a few shots just to get to those 30 points. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just a credit to, you know, LSU's physical toughness, Angel Reese. I mean, she's a phenomenal player. Great on defense, great on offense. She's going to be one of the next great WNBA bigs um, to come out of college. And I think it's just a testament to how good LSU has been under Kim Mulkey. And, and, you know, the goal that she had there was that she wanted to bring a national title back to her home state. She ended up doing that. So um, I think it's great to see LSU get the win. Obviously, like you said, with the whole celebration thing, that's a whole other conversation in itself that we can get into if we want. But I think overall it was just a good showcase of, yeah. Um, the fact that LSU, LSU was just really good, a really good basketball team, really complete, really talented, and that the SEC, you know, like you said, Car- South Carolina going undefeated for a while, LSU winning the national title goes to show you how dominant those types of conferences are in, in women's college basketball. Mm-hmm. When we think about the way Angel Reese celebrated, whether, um, you know, whether it's a hand in the face, how do you guys perceive um, – the, the moves that Angel Reese had towards the end of that game, whether it was directed at Clayton, Caitlin Clark, or uh, just what were your thoughts to it? I'll start with Kyle. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I kind of liked it, and that, that just shows how competitive the game is. And clearly there was a narrative that was set um, against Angel Reese in the situation because clearly Clay, Caitlin Clark – didn't have a problem with that, and a lot of people just kind of assumed that she did. 
And uh, Caitlin Clark was on ESPN saying, you know, uh, she says, you know, it's just trash talk. I mean, it happens. It's a competitive nature and it's a part of the game. And so um, if people don't like it, then they're just going to have to deal with it, (laughs) you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. plain simple from, from Clark. And I I think she really handled that the right way. And um, she didn't throw any shots at anyone in the process either. I thought that was important. And you could see that there was definitely a mutual respect between her and Angel Reese um, coming through that situation when a lot of people thought it, it was the opposite case. We had seen a Caitlin Clark do similar celebration type moves, um, but kind of directed towards her fan base, whereas you saw Angel Reese kind of do it directed towards Caitlin and Clark. Um, then what was your reaction to um, kind of the extracurriculars um, between with Angel Reese? Um. I thought it, it was fair. I think it was good for her to celebrate. Like you said, I think it's just a part of the game. I think it's great for the game to do for people to do stuff like that. Um, I think the way that the media and, and people out there on Twitter and all these other social media apps kind of portrayed Angel Reese in, in that sort of negative light, I thought it was very unfair. Um, you know, I mean, even Caitlin Clark said herself, it was just part of the game. I think it was just part of the game in the end. The way that the people were trying to portray Angel Reese in this like negative light is just so... It's it's honestly just makes me really sad um, to kind of see stuff like that and 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 but you know I mean that's part of that's part of the nature of of the media and 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 um and you know there's going to be trolls out there everywhere regardless of what sport you do so um, I thought it was fair for her to do stuff like that I mean like you said Caitlin Clark does it all the time I think I think it's great for the game you know to have people compete yeah. like that and, and engage in these antics I think it's I think it's great it it obviously clearly gets more people to watch I mean more people yeah. watch the game more people watch the celebration. So clearly something's working uh, to help benefit the game with these celebrations happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was thinking about that, I was watching more kind of after the fact and see what people said about these, uh, the, the the symbols and things like that. I think there was someone, I think it was not Undisputed on Fox Sports. They said it was kind of like Caitlin Clark was doing it like a Steph Curry type, and then Angel Reese was doing it more like of a Jeremiah Green type with that kind of mentality type of that'll it'll get in your face but it's not to the point where it's going to result in a technical foul every single time but i think that's kind of how it ultimately is perceived knowing that it was angel reese kind of directly did it at caitlin clark whereas caitlin clark was doing it to to motivate her team and motivate her fans um as the game progressed but even too you think about just what's at stake, you know, this is a national championship that's at stake, you know, this is, um, you know, like we mentioned earlier, you know, an LSU team that was trying to rebuild their program back to a national stage, you know, like we mentioned earlier, you know, this is an Angel Reese who transferred from the Big Ten in that conference, or actually say the Big 12, uh, transferring from Maryland, so there's a lot online too, and, you know, with the adrenaline and the pressure that also comes into play. All right, we're going to continue talking March Madness. We're going to go to the men's side now. Um, Before we get to uh, the Aztecs aspect of it, it was the last NCAA Final Four in a national championship broadcast from Jim Nance. Devin, I'm going to start with you. Reaction to um, knowing that Jim Nance was calling his final national championship and involving 
San Diego State. I mean, he's an icon, right? I mean, when you think of college basketball, when you think of March Madness, you think of the national title game, you think of Jim Nance, right? Um, you know, it, it's funny because in, when in Houston, when you're in the stadium, Jim Nance does the player intros, and you can hear it throughout the stadium. And then that's that's kind of like the moment as a college basketball fan where you're like, oh, man, like, you you know, they made it. They made it to the big stage. Jim Nance is doing, you know, all these things. I think he's going to go down as like one of the, I mean, he already is a legend of broadcasting as it is. And I mean, he's called so many iconic final four games, college basketball games throughout time through decades. I think, you know, it, it just means so much to, to see that San Diego state is the last final four game that he called. I mean, there's just, like, I think it's fitting. There's a special connection there. I mean, the special season and, and ending to a special career. I think, I think it's fitting. I think it's fitting. Kyle, what are your thoughts about Jim Nance being able to call um, his final national championship that includes San Diego State? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely special. I, I think it's kind of a cool factor that adds on to this run to the national championship. Um, obviously, it always feels special when there's a notable commentator calling uh, the game of your favorite team. And that happened several times here uh, for San Diego State in this tournament. Kevin Harlan, I believe, called like two or three games or something like that. And uh, for Jim Nance to be the last one, I mean, it's definitely special. I mean, he, he is uh, such an icon in, in broadcasting and media. His voice is so recognizable. And uh, his sign-off was definitely sad, for sure. Um, that, that was... Uh, a part that kind of hit me hard, but to be honest, I mean, kind of coming into this game, I had no idea that it was his last national championship until I saw the previews, and I was like, no way. Like, it was kind of hard to believe, but I mean, what a great run and, and career for him, and uh, he's not done yet. He's still going to cover a lot more other sports. Yeah, he's doing the Masters this week, so he goes straight from, goes from Houston to Augusta, where we were talking about the Masters. Um, he'll be on the broadcast tomorrow and Sunday when CBS is on air. But we think about this national championship, Devin, you were in Houston. Um, when did you decide to fly to Houston for the Final Four, and uh, when did you leave and get back? Yeah. Um, so I decided as soon as they won the, as soon as they beat Creighton. Um, you know, I was at Vejas Arena at that watch party. Yeah. Storming the court, and I'm just thinking, like, man, like. You know, and I was already scheduled for work at the time, so I was yeah. like, I got, I was like, I got, I'm telling my dad, I'm like, I gotta find a way to go to Houston, gotta find a way to go to Houston. So then, um, I think it was like early that week we were like, okay, we're gonna do this thing. So then, I talked to my boss at the time, and I'm like, yeah, like we got tickets to the Final Four, even though in in at the time, you know, because with SDSU you had to pay to request a ticket to go to the, you know, to go to the final four, to get the, get them fulfilled. Um, so I was telling my boss, like, yeah, we got tickets to the final four. Like, I, I really want to go. Like, if there's any way that you can get me the weekend off, if possible, like, let me know. Um, and fortunately my boss, amazing person that she is Casey Trombley. She's amazing. Shout out to her. Um, she got me Saturday and Sunday off. I was already off Monday, Tuesday, Monday and Tuesdays are my regular days off. So it happened to align perfectly that I get Saturday, Sunday off. Um, and so since I got Saturday, Sunday off, I decided to 
leave we decided to leave to Houston. My dad and I we left for um Houston. We tried to get a flight out of San Diego. Obviously, none of them were there. I mean, they were all gone or all booked up. And this is like at Wednesday at the time of that week. And we were like, okay, let's just go to LAX, fly from drive to LAX, and then get a, a nonstop from LAX to Houston. And so that's what we ended up doing. And it's funny because I had to swap a shift. And so I did the 11 p.m. show on Friday. I leave work at 11.30, get home around like 11.50 or midnight. And then 3 a.m. or 3.30, my dad and I, we drive three hours to get to LAX and park just so that we can make it into the airport and go through TSA for our 8.40 a.m. flight to Houston. And we get to Houston at 1.47 in the afternoon on Saturday. Um, so that's how... That's how we got to Houston. Mm-hmm. Devin, did you have any time to sleep? I know we're going to get more into your experiences throughout your Houston trip, but did you have any time to sleep? No. Um, I only slept like maybe two hours. And then it's funny because you sleep those two hours, but I'm like so amped and so nervous, so stressed out because yeah. I'm like, I haven't, I haven't flown anywhere in like quite a few years. I mean, I, I don't really, I don't really take any trips through the air. So I'm like, and then you feel that ampness of like, holy, holy, mm, I mean, you know, holy crap. Like I'm mm-hmm. going to the final four. Like, you know, you feel all those nerves in your skin, you feel it in your bones, you feel it in your head. Um, and so all that stuff's running through you. And, you know, you feel that when you're driving to LAX, when you're on the plane, then when you land, you know, so I didn't really get much sleep. Um, I slept on the airplane. So and that was nice because it's pretty convenient. I mean, there's nothing else you can really do other than sleep um, or listen to music. Um, so I did a little bit of that. And then I just tried getting a few, like, you know, a couple power naps when I as soon as I landed in Houston. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We get to the final four game against Florida Atlantic. Devin, you're there in Houston. Take me through. You know, obviously we know what happened at the end, but take me through. You know, at that point, down fourteen. What was kind of that mentality um, on Saturday? Yeah. So we we walk. You know, to start before the game, we walk in the stadium at NRG Stadium. And this is like, keep in mind for the listeners here, this is a football stadium that has a basketball court on a raised stage right in the middle. And so, like, just imagine like 72,000 of the college basketball fans from all these different schools. You have a huge FAU contingent on one side. And you got like tens of thousands of SDSU fans. I mean, almost, I don't want to say 30K, but it's quite a few SDSU fans in the arena. Um, yeah, and it's funny because they, they got off to that good start. Everybody's like, you know, excited. We're feeling good. We're feeling amped. Then they go down and then we're like, you know, you just kind of feel like desperation mode kind of kick in, in in you as a fan. You know, we're just, we're up, we're standing, we're doing all the cheers, like just trying to push, you know, and I'm I'm thinking like, we yeah. got to come back in the game. We got to come back in the game. And I, and I was like, I didn't want him to lose because I'm like, shoot, I got to come back on, come back to San Diego on, or come back to LAX on Tuesday. I don't, I'd rather, you know, I don't want to have the trip end early. So um, you know, everybody in that mindset and all these ASIC fans behind me, the side of me, the front of me, we're all thinking like, we just got to win. We just, you know, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. And that's what we kept thinking we were going to, you know, just use them, use our depth to tire them out. Or we had to have something come our way. That's what we were just thinking, that desperation aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Let me think about down 14 at one point, and the ASIC starts to claw their way back. What was it like having to see the rebounding start to go the ASIC's way both? both on the defensive glass and on the offensive glass. I think it was about eight offensive rebounds in like a four, two-minute span or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, it was huge for them to get those rebounds. I mean, they couldn't buy a rebound starting the first half. I mean, 
shoot. I mean, they couldn't buy a rebound. They were getting, you know, silly foul calls. I mean, everybody's like, oh, my gosh, like this team's playing terrible. We might lose. I mean, this is a national stage we're talking about here. So, um, you know, we were like – it was just – it was great to kind of just finally see the rebounds go our way for once. I mean, and and I think that ultimately is what made the, the big difference in them coming back is, you know, yeah, they got their defense to hold them, I think, scoreless for like a seven-minute stretch there in the second half. But the big thing was that they got back on active on the glass. That golden guy got in foul trouble, the big man for Florida Atlantic. And then everybody else that they were starting were pretty much guards. So they had that size advantage already. And I think that helped them a ton in getting back in and ultimately winning the game. And then we think about the shot heard around the world. And we get towards, obviously, the play before that. You think about the defense from Rope. You think about the rebound from Nathan Minta. And then get it to Lamont Butler as those 30 seconds, or I should say really more like 20 seconds because they have the timeout. What was kind of your emotions as that, as the play went from one half to the court to the other? Honestly, I didn't even want to look at the court. <laughs> um, I was just like so nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, they, they that play starts and they get the block and then we're like, oh, like, yes, 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 this is great. They get the rebound. They were thinking, call timeout. Like, my dad and I were screaming, call timeout. People were next to me, call timeout, call timeout, call timeout. They pushed the ball forward. Then we're like, no, what are you doing? No, 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 no. And then, um, you know, Lamont, you know, gets the ball, pulls up. Or, or it gets to, or actually, I should say, he, you know, does those dribbles. And then he does that little crossover, gets a three, gets a two. We're thinking, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. And then um, he puts the shot up and it goes in and everybody's like, oh, my. You know, everybody just starts jumping. People are crying. I'm crying. My dad's crying. I mean, I just sat sat down afterward on my seat and I was like, this is just unreal. Like, I mean, it's just so to be a part of something like that. I mean, obviously it sucks. I didn't get to record it. That was the one thing that I wish I could have done. It was my phone died in the first half. So I didn't get to record the rest of the game. But um, I was just like, man, I mean, to see something like that. And then what's even greater is like, I was telling people, I'm like, I can't wait to see the TV call. Cause if it felt so good when you're watching it live, like the TV call is going to be even more better. And then just to watch it afterwards. I mean, it is, it was just unreal. I mean, people were screaming. You just hear a roar. I mean, a roar of SDSU fans in there. And it was just, it was such a surreal experience. I mean, I, that's that's something I'm going to carry down with me for the rest of my life to see that see that in person and be there for that Final Four. Mm-hmm. Kyle, you think about when that shot went down. Where were you at and what was your reaction? Yeah, I was at my uh, sister's engagement party when it happened. And the reaction was pretty crazy because that was when everyone had shown up at that point. So it was about 30 minutes or so in. We were able to find a stream, and I didn't have Wi-Fi there, so I had to connect through a hotspot on my phone. And once that shot went in, you know, it looked good from the angle, so I was feeling good about it. You know, once he initially put it up, couldn't really react until it went in. But it it was crazy. I, I picked up my dad, uh, went outside, like ran around the pool. Like it, it was it was crazy. Like I haven't experienced a sports moment like that pro- probably ever, to be honest with you. I mean, you there's some moments you could put up there, um, but I mean, just for San Diego State to be in the final four, not only that, but savor the moment and just really create uh, a lasting memory for a lot of people. Um, that's really special. And I mean, who would have thought San Diego State would be 
in a national championship game of any kind in the year of 2023. I mean, it's astounding and it's a great accomplishment for the city and the university. And one thing I will also have to add is that that Lamont Butler shot was pure art. I mean, absolutely beautiful. Um, I, I don't really know how else to describe it other than it was, you know, pretty much one of the best shots you could ever dream of for that type of situation. One thing I wanted to add to was like when, like after the game ended, you know, I went on the concourse and people are like, you know, hugging random, like pe- random people are hugging random Aztec fans. Uh, people are high-fiving each other. People are just jumping around cheering. You know, they're doing the chants in the concourse, you know, and these are like, these are people that don't know each other, right? These are just Aztec fans just celebrating because of this win. And so just imagine like, you know, random people are just giving you high fives in the concourse. Miami fans are like, dude, this is insane. Like, congrats. Like, you know, just having that sort of gratification of like fans and just celebrating that moment, man. Like that's what, that's what makes the final four great. That's what makes college basketball great is, 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 is moments like that. And then as fans being able to celebrate all that stuff, I mean, it's just, it was, it was a surreal moment at energy stadium. Yeah, I was at VA Haas Arena with my parents. We were there for the watch party, and there's a good seven, maybe 8,000 fans. There's about a little bit more than half of the arena was full uh, based on what VA Haas Arena opened up to Aztec fans to watch the game. And so, yeah, as that game is going, you know, VA Haas Arena, you know, the fans are the start getting back into it, you know, with that comeback. And, you know, it's, you know, we knew that at that point, you know, late in the year, you know, the Aztecs weren't being able to put up shots late in the clock or late late in games. And so it was like you knew it was going to come down to somebody needing to make a shot, um, no matter who it was. You know, and knowing that Brian Dutcher had three, head coach Brian Dutcher had three bigs into the game, it was like, all right, you know, who are you? You know, Jaden Ledea just made a couple of buckets and, you know, you – you vaguely remember that Lamont Butler hit a game-winning shot in New Mexico, kind of on that same situation with seven seconds left and you're running up the court. And those fans at Vejas just went crazy, like Devin mentioned, for the Elite Eight game against Creighton. That watch party goes crazy. Fans storm the court just like they did for the Final Four game. And it was just crazy. Fans are honking. Students, since it's uh, spring break, they're still here in San Diego, and they're going crazy, and it was um, kind of a wild experience when you really think about it. And then we get to we get to Monday's national championship. Devin, what was it like knowing that you were in the in the stadium with the Aztecs having to play for a national title? I mean, it was it, it is surreal. So you know, you walk in there, right, and and before like. Before I get into all that stuff, I mean, you walk into NRG Stadium on the outside, they got all this NCAA Final Four garb decorating around the stadium, and then you see this big banner on the stadium exterior with, you know, the Final Four logo, and it has all four teams. And just seeing San Diego State there, like, that's a big deal, you know, because San Diego State never made, like I said, never made it that far, first Final Four in school history. So huge, huge deal seeing something like that. Um, And it was great because I, I... um, we get to our seats and they gave everybody a free um, Final Four bag. Like we got a free drawstring bag from the NCAA for every seat. 
um, gets a free Final Four back. So it was just cool in that experience. I mean, and you see so many San Diego State fans. I mean, even way more than Saturdays. Um, you know, I'm I'm seeing people that I last saw in college, like Amber. It's funny because, um, you know, we uh, I went to go get my dad some kettle corn, and then I was walking back with a kettle corn and a beer in my hand, and here I see Amber with two beers in her hand, and, and she's walking by, and then we're like, oh my gosh, like so good to see you. So. Um, you know, just seeing your seeing your friends from college, seeing people from the show that was, you know, the show when I was last in the show three years ago, like just this that sort of experience of seeing people that you haven't seen in a long time. Um, it, that just was a great, great experience. And then, you know, they get to the intros and, you know, they're doing the national anthem and they have the woman from the Artemis mission doing the national anthem. And in that moment, you kind of just feel this sort of like special a truly heartfelt kind of moment just cross through you because it's like, this is the, this is the final four. Like, this is it, you know, 72,000 people in this stadium, Artem, the people from the Artemis mission, this woman doing the anthem, it just, it felt like a truly uh, heartfelt special kind of just a, a, a moment that was years in the making for, for me as a San Diego state fan, as a San Diego state as a program, all that sort of thing. It just was a super, super special moment to be there and see your team play in the final four against the UConn team that, you know, everybody already had animosity for because of the last sweet 16 game, you know, there's, you know, they showed Kemba on the scoreboard. They're calling him a flopper, get him off my screen, all that, all that stuff. So it was just, it was, it was great to be there. Um, Obviously the game didn't go the way that they want, that we all wanted it to go, but it was a fun experience. Great to be there. Mm-hmm. Kyle, when you think about despite the outcome that had, what do you, what does this mean now? Uh, moving forward for the South Stakes team, and you can include the Mountain West with the Aztecs tweeting the first team from the Mountain West to get to a national championship, let alone let alone get past the Sweet 16, and what this says for mid-majors, obviously, from what we saw from Florida Atlantic. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, this was such a unique Final Four in that, you know, UConn ending up in the position that they were, I mean, being a four seed, a lot of people questioned that. A lot of people thought they should be higher. They kind of proved it. I mean, they won every game in this tournament by like 15 plus or something like that. So, um, to see them, you know, perform so well in every game was crazy. But like you mentioned, that FAU SDSU matchup was huge for mid majors. Um, I mean, when's the last time we've seen that? And so for these teams to kind of stand out the way they did, play so well throughout this tournament. And like you mentioned, put the Mountain West especially on the map, San Diego State carrying the load for that conference essentially. I mean, it really just puts the Aztecs in a position now to where they can move up into potentially a Power 5 conference like perhaps the Pac-12 or maybe the Big 12. I mean, you never know. We'll see what happens here, but I think anything is hap- anything is possible. Um, if anything, I think Pac-12 has, you know, the uh, increased likelihood by the day, it, it seems at this point. So um, it, it's huge for the program, and I, I think really just huge for San Diego sports because it obviously qualifies as one of the biggest moments in sports history down there. Devin, mm-hmm. so when you think about some of the players on this Aztec team that have been in, at San Diego State for a while, you think about Adam Seiko, who's been here for six years. You think about Nathan Mensa. You think about Agueca Rope. You think about Matt Bradley, who decided to, who wanted to transfer 
San Diego State, we heard what he said. It was after the national championship game that, you know, he was thinking about just stop playing basketball. What does this run to the national championship mean for those seven players? I think it just goes to show you that they can do it, right? I mean, they talked so much about the year before, right, them losing so many close games, uh, them feeling frustrated that they couldn't close games. And what was the theme all year this year was that they needed to win and they needed to win marginally by quite a few. And, and I think it's funny because last year they lost a lot of close games in the NCAA tournament. I think they were undefeated when they, the game margin was between five points or less. Um, so I think I think it was just, you know, this run um, goes to show you what committing to a program like San Diego State means for a lot of these players, right? Oguaco Rope, um, you know, became one of the best, like, I think, stalwarts on the defensive end for San Diego State and one of the best, like, just hard-nosed, you know, blue-collar players for San Diego State. Nathan Mensah grew from, you know, starting as a freshman, not really knowing much about basketball from from Akragana to now being a, a, I think he was one of the top shot blockers in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, uh, through six games. I mean, Matt Bradley, his whole story, you know, being from Cal, you know, being a scorer there, but not really in a winning program there. They were pretty terrible under Viking Jones and and those teams. And he goes to San Diego State, gets a taste of the tournament, and obviously got you know lost a great and sour taste in your mouth. They come back and make it all the way to a national championship. I think that's a pretty great way to close and same thing for Seiko I mean he you know he saw it right the 2020 team that could have been um just kind of I think this whole run just kind of encapsulates like what it means to be an Aztec be in this program and what it means for those players to commit to head coach Brian Dutcher and his system his philosophy his culture it just goes to show you that all that stuff you you will reap the fruits of your labor if you are willing to put in the work and all of these guys have put the work throughout their careers here at San Diego State. We think about Adam Seiko. He's been here six years. That's the same length as Brian Dutcher's head coaching career now. Kyle, what is Brian Dutcher going to be able to do without Adam Seiko next year? Yeah, who knows? I mean, he's one of those glue guys who just holds the team together. And like you mentioned, Brevin, he was a freshman when we were. So he yeah. is now departing. I mean, Stetson Bennett type B. I mean, he's 25 years <laughs> old. He's, uh, you know, just got finished playing uh, college basketball. So that's crazy in itself. But I, I think what's key is really just the transfer portal, not only for him, but uh, to address their needs, you know, at uh, power forward and also, you know, center with uh, Nathan Mesa departing. AG, like you already mentioned, Devin, um, those are really important holes to fill, especially defensively. And I think, like we've seen with this Aztec team, where you're able to get a lot of the guys who are willing to commit to the program and to buy in with uh, not only their individual talents, but um, really just uh, dedicate their defense and uh, work ethic to this program, it always stands out. So, um, I think that's key, and we're going to see if they're going to be able to uh, do that successfully here yet again this offseason because it definitely paid off last year with guys like Tremel and Ladie coming in. I mean, just huge different make- difference makers for this team. Mm-hmm. We think about transfers in the past who've come to San Diego State. We think about Malachi Flynn. We think about what he's turned into now playing in the NBA with the 
Toronto Raptors. As you see, Malachi Flynn transferring from Washington State. You also had Santa Cruz Warriors, the G League affiliate of the Golden State Warriors, guard Jordan Shackle. Um, both of them were part of that 2019-20 team that went 30-2. and two. You had more, a total of more than 50 former Aztec basketball players, along with head coach Steve Fisher, um, in attendance. Devin, what was it like knowing that that many players came back to came to Houston to cheer on their former program? It just goes to show you, like, the whole family aspect, right? I mean, they always say in the huddle, team on three, family on six. Um, you know, the, the Aztec, like Dutchers, I think, said repeatedly, I mean, Aztec basketball, it's a family, right? People, these players are going to, you know, follow Brian Dutcher, follow coach, head coach Dave Velasquez, all these other guys for, for years going on. And I think it was awesome to see people like Brandon Heath, Kyle Spain, Mark Slaughter, all these dudes from way back when, I mean, even before my time, to see them at the Final Four, I mean, it was it was it was awesome. Like, like, uh, you know, like Dutcher said, it was like a, a big family reunion for all Aztec fans, all Aztec players. I mean, it was one big giant sea of red and black in Houston. So it was just phenomenal to kind of see them, you know, be back, show up, be here. Um, you know, one person I would have liked to see was Kawhi Leonard, but I mean, obviously, you know, people have their, their commitments and stuff like that. And I, I get it. I get it. You know, he's in the NBA playoff run, but, um, yeah, I mean it was it was it was great to just see all those former players there, and it just goes to show you how much the influence of guys like Steve Fisher and Brian Dutcher extend into people's lives, into people's homes, into people's families. Yeah, we saw that too with Jawan Howard, who was in attendance. He had coached for the University of Michigan. Kyle, we think about when uh, Brian Dutcher and Steve Fisher first got to San Diego State. They said, you know, we're going to get to we're going to win Final Four, we're going to get to a national championship. What does it mean that? nearly almost a little after two decades later that they're able to fulfill that and get to a Final Four, get to a national championship. Yeah, I mean, it's 100% special to see this pan out the way it has. I mean, this is what they envisioned. And I, I think a lot of people thought it would take longer to get there, myself included. But for them to end up in the spot now, it's huge for the program. It's, I mean, just heaps of national attention, you know, is now bestowed upon this program as a result of this, you know, massive run here. And I I think it's huge for these student athletes because it just shows that Dutcher has finally recruited these guys within his six-year span, like you mentioned, Brevin. And that's a full cycle of these players. So uh, once he's once he's able to show that he can do it again, I mean, it's just a confirmation of all of it. I mean, he's done it once, and uh, I mean, no doubt that he's going to continue to build upon the guys that he's recruited and the guys that he'll bring in via the transfer portal because um, right now he's doing things right and the legacy that's been instilled for this program is not only on fire right now, but that fire is going to continue burning. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk some NBA. We're going to talk some Major League Baseball. Opening day was last week. Some teams had their home openers uh, within the last couple of days. That includes the Los Angeles Angels. We're going to talk about Kyle's favorite baseball team. We're going to get into some Padres news. But I need to get in store here on the second half, which Devin is going to continue to stay with us. 
What's up, everyone? What's up, everyone? And welcome back to Down the Line. I am Kyle Betts, joined by Brevin Honda and our special guest, Devin Watley. This is episode number 95. We're recording this here on April 7th. It's a Friday, just after 8.15 here on the West Coast. We got into a lot so far in our Fast Five. A lot of sports news happening within the span over the past week or so. Uh, We talked about Devin's experience in Houston so far, what he was able to do going to the national championship. We gave our thoughts on the Aztecs' run to the Natty and what it did for the program. We talked about all the Aztec alums that showed up for the tournament as well. But now we're going to get into some NBA, and that also includes another part of Devin's experience in Houston over the weekend, and that is watching LeBron James and the L.A. Lakers take on the Houston Rockets Sunday at the Toyota Center. Devin, how fun was this to watch the Lakers not only in person yet again, but not in their home state, their their home arena, just a, a, in different territory. I mean, what was that like? It was great um, because there were a lot of other Laker fans at the Rockets uh, at Toyota Center. I mean, the Rockets are terrible. They only got 19 wins. I think they had finished with 60 losses. So, um, yeah. you know, I wasn't expecting there to be like a whole Rockets contingent at the game. I mean, so, um, you know, we go up there. There's like a dozens of people with LBJ jerseys on, with Anthony Davis jerseys on. Um and it was it was a it was a fun time. I mean, obviously, you know, you just like the team. I mean, the the environment in Houston, like just the whole game environment, entertainment wise, was kind of terrible. But I mean, yeah, you know, I, I I'm not surprised. I mean, Houston is not you know the Rockets aren't that good. So I mean, you can't really sell that much when they're not that good. But um, it was fun to see LeBron see the Lakers. The last time I saw the Lakers play was when Brandon Ingram was there and they played Kawhi Leonard um, at Staples Center, which was like. Gosh, I mean, five years ago. So, I mean, that was – it was great to kind of actually see my team, you know, and see LeBron. That was on a bucket list sort of item. So, um, it was it was great. It was a great environment, and, you know, the Lakers are dominating. I, I think the one thing that really stood out to me was just, like, the whole style of play difference in the NBA when you're watching it in person comparing that to a college basketball game. It almost feels like the guys aren't even trying that hard because – and I think it's just because they're so talented that scoring and – and defense and all these other things that, you know, college kids are playing super hard at, it almost comes effortless for them. Um, and I think that just that, that style of play and that difference, I mean, I remember telling my dad, I'm like, you know, looking at the clock and halftime, I'm like, man, they already got 90 points and 90, 70 at halftime. I'm like, the Aztecs have never touched 70 points in the last like 10 games. Like, um, so I think it was just, it was great to kind of just be in that environment check out an NBA game for the first time in a while in person. I think it was, it was just fantastic. Yeah, that's great to hear you had a good time there, and that experience was a little unique for sure, it seems. Um, what's your thoughts on the Lakers, though, Devin? I want to kind of get into their season as a whole. Obviously, things kind of changed after the trade deadline. They made some moves to spice up their team a little bit and add some depth, and it's paying off. But what do you think right now they need to do in order to continue to get into the playoffs, not only do that, but with two games left here, make that push and try to avoid getting into the playing game. I mean, they're playing the Suns right now. It's currently 50 to 44 in favor of the Suns. But um, if they win this game, I mean, how big would that be in terms of their playoff hopes? Oh, it's huge. I mean, and the biggest thing that I think they need to focus on is playing together, right? I mean, you you saw against uh, Houston, 
right? Their defense, they're playing pretty solid. And, and, you know, the Rockets are not a great offensive team, but they're a team that, you know, they play in a similar type of style to the Golden State Warriors. They like to play fast. They like to shoot. They like to push the ball a lot. And I think you kind of saw how good the Lakers can be when they play together as a team. When you got LeBron James playing well, when you got Anthony Davis playing to his potential, I think he almost finished with 40 points in the, against Houston. When he plays like that, I mean, I don't think there's anybody else that can beat him in the league. I mean, when he, when you play in that aspect and that level of a top five type of echelon player, that's what I think Anthony Davis can be on a good day when he plays when he chooses to play like that. Um, but I think, like I said, the the big thing that they got to do is just keep playing together, keep keep playing as a unit, keep staying together, and and don't let these, you know, the big thing is you got to just key in on your on your skills, right? Key in on your talent. You got a lot of great scores on this team with Hachimura, with uh, you know Vanderbilt who plays hard with James with Reeves, with Davis, you got to use those guys. And then, of course, make sure that you can defend. That's the biggest thing. They didn't do that against the Clippers. They're struggling again with that with the Suns, and you're dealing with a lot of teams that can really score. You're going to need to be able to do that really well, or at least enough in these next you know, few games to get that playoff spot and lock it in. Yeah, absolutely. And like I mentioned, the Lakers playing the Suns in this game, well, the Suns are not at full strength. By any means. And right now, once again, the score 50 to 49. Uh, Lakers trying to catch up here, but I mean, these some starters, I'll, I'll tell you the, these names. Um, Landry Shamet, Cameron Payne, Tori Craig, Josh Okogie, and Bismack Biombo. I mean, there's not. Telling the game, clearly. Yeah, there's not one starter here in this lineup. The Lakers were 14 point favorites playing at, you know, obviously playing at home coming into this matchup. Um, huge game here and huge opportunity for the Lakers, but, um, clearly they have some work to do. If they end up winning this game, then they'll have 42 wins and 39 losses. Well, that's going to make them tied with the Pelicans for the seventh spot in the playoffs. And in front of them, there's two teams that are 42 and 38. That's the Clippers and the Warriors. So some huge implications here coming up this weekend here in the NBA playoffs, Brevin. Uh, let me talk to you a little bit about this. If the Lakers win this game, I mean, how exciting could this finish be? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be crazy to see how these final few days go. Um, with this regular season concluding Sunday. I mean, I think the Warriors and the Clippers play against each other. No, they play the Kings and the Suns, I think, for their final two games. And both the Kings and the Suns, they're pretty much not going to move anywhere. They're not going to be able to move up or down. So this is why you're not seeing players like Kevin Durant play tonight as well. So it would be interesting to see how these these final five through nine play out um, before the Western Conference portion of the playing tournament begins on Tuesday. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, this could be a really good finish to the regular season here in the NBA, especially when you consider this Western Conference. Um, but let's get into the East, though, too, because there's a lot happening there, and the Bucks pretty much with a clear-cut lead at this point, 58 wins for them. The Celtics a little behind with 56 wins, followed by the Sixers, the Cavs, the Knicks, Nets, Heat, Hawks, 
Raptors and the Bulls. Um, we could see some positions flip here within seedings and the play-in, which could be significant. But other than that, not much change happening elsewhere here, uh, Devin, when you consider the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I mean, it looks pretty solid based off of what I'm seeing in the standings right here. I mean, a lot of these teams were kind of expected to be in the playoffs to begin with at the start of the season. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see who, you know, fights for that last those last few spots in the East. I mean, the, you got the Bulls, you got the Raptors, you got the Hawks, you got the Heat. I mean, these are teams that, you know, have stars on them playing a little desperate. You know, when you're playing a little desperate, sometimes that can lead to a lot of upsets. And that's why we, that's why I love this play in format because you just end up with crazy, crazy games, teams desperate, one game playoff. It's, it's fantastic. So I'm intrigued to see who kind of finishes in that latter back half of the East. Either way, I think it'll be kind of cruising cruising speed in the playoffs for teams like the Bucks and the Celtics and the Sixers once, you know, they figure out those matchups. I think they're going to just wreck through those all all those teams. I mean. Yeah, I agree. And I do want to revisit. Yeah, I want to NBA Finals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was Take off the jersey, go up on the broadcast table, throw it in the stands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I and I do want to revisit the West, uh, the Western Conference here as well before we move on. The Nuggets currently in first, 52 wins on their end. The Grizzlies right behind in second, they have 51 wins. But um, the Kings, like you mentioned, locked in at third. Suns at four, uh, they have 45 wins. And like I mentioned, uh, Clippers, Warriors, Pelicans. All have 42 wins. Lakers, we'll see what happens between them and the Suns tonight. The Timberwolves and the Thunder just behind, and the Mavericks are currently in 11. So maybe a little bit of a surprise there at number 11, but anything can happen. There's still uh, time left in, in the season, a couple games left for them. So we're going to see if they can make a play-in game. But when, I mean, you consider these teams here in the Western Conference – I mean, anything could really happen, especially near that bottom half. So it could really pan out to be an exhilarating finish. And I just wanted to also note that the Phoenix Suns, um, while they're not playing with their starters tonight, they're hoping to go 9-0 and since the return of Kevin Durant. I mean, he's not playing tonight, but um, that could be significant if they can continue their win streak here. Um, obviously, like I mentioned before, the Suns starters – have been benched tonight. Uh, the play-in tournament for the NBA is going to start next Tuesday in the first round of the playoffs. It's going to start next Saturday, the 15th. So a lot of dates to look forward to here on the NBA calendar within the next week. And it could be a really exciting start to this postseason here. All right, let's move on here to MLB and let's talk some baseball. Devin, another part of your trip to Houston was not only stopping at Energy Stadium for the Final Four and the Toyota Center for Lakers and Rockets, but you also found some time to go to Minute Maid Park, which seems like a really nice ballpark. I definitely want to visit that place. And you were able to take in watching the reigning World Series champions, Astros, I mean, how cool of an experience was that, and what happened during the game? Yeah, I mean, 
what I was able to pull off five games in three days is not, in, you know, that's that shouldn't be possible in a regular scenario. But I mean, in Houston, there is nothing that's bought in pot, you know, there's nothing that's like regular there in Houston. Everything is kind of out of the box. So, um, yeah, we went to Minute Maid Park. It was a 110, you know, first pitch against the White Sox. I mean, and, you know, we were thinking, you know, the White Sox weren't that great. I mean, but they actually won. I think they won this game like six to two. They played, played pretty well. I mean, um, I was quite, you know, one of the things I was really, really impressed with was like how dedicated and diehard and loyal Astros fans are. I mean, they treat that stuff like it's a religion down there in Houston. Um, you know, it's funny because our, our Uber driver, when we were driving into the stadium, she's like, yeah, like people are so serious about the Astros that like they even they closed off schools. They, they, they moved church services down so people could attend the parades. Like they take base, they take Astros fans, take it very seriously there. Um, and I felt it like as soon as the, you know, the PA guy comes on, he sounds very much like Don Orsillo with a Texan accent. Um, you know, he, he, he comes on there and he's like, you know, we talking about introducing all the players and everybody's just cheering crazy for all of them. Kyle Tucker, Jeremy Pena. And it was cool because we actually got a giveaway. Um, I have it over here, but we have a, we got a giveaway Jeremy Pena world series ring, uh, ring replica ring from the Houston Astros that they gave away to all the fans. So I got to get one, take one of those home with me to back to San Diego, a replica world series ring from Jeremy Pena. So that was pretty fun. Um, yeah. And it was a really cool environment. I mean, when you step in the ballpark, it just feels, and, and one of the big things I, I love about MLB ballparks is like the connection and the intimacy toward the community. You know, you see that with Petco park and a lot of the local restaurants they have there, the views, you get that same sort of feeling in Houston, right. With the, you know, with the train, with all these different, you know, restaurants they have there with Shake Shack, with Taquerias Arandas, um, all you know, Pluckers, all these different places that are like natural Houston, Texas places that people go to every day. Um, feeling that connection with the community uh, that this ballpark has, and, and I felt that, and it was it was great to be there. Um, obviously, I, I was expecting way more from the Astros, but they came out pretty flat. Um, I forgot what the pitcher's name was. I don't know if it was Garcia. It definitely wasn't Valdez, but. Um, you know, they didn't, they didn't really come out playing that well, couldn't get a lot of hits. I mean, the Astros or the, the White Sox came out, played really well. I mean, that, that, uh, uh, I think his name was Smith Jr. or something like that. Him and Moncada, they had several bombs. They were playing pretty well. Um, so I was more impressed with how good the White Sox looked. Obviously the Astros, you know, should have came out with a dub, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a great environment. I got to meet Dan Hayes, uh, you know, fellow DA alum, Dan Hayes. I got to meet him in person. So that was great. Um, you know, just, so just seeing, you know, being there, being there and, and checking out this experience, you know, like I said, you know, I, I said before it was a once in a lifetime kind of trip. It was, just, and, and I feel the same way when I was at Minimade Park. I mean, just a, just a special place to be for sports fans, a special place to be for baseball. I mean, you feel the winning, you feel the heritage, you feel the history there with Houston Astros. I mean, you just, you felt it. I mean, it was, it was incredible. Devin, was the roof open or closed? Um, when you it was closed. Um, it was closed because they were expecting, um, I think they were expecting thunderstorms and showers, but it actually didn't rain at all on Sunday in Houston, thankfully. Thankfully. Um, but yeah, the dome was closed on at Minimate Park. Yeah, it's been a, a lot of fun this season, this early season. We're going to get into some fair or foul right now. How do we feel about, uh, we, talk, we talked about the new rules over the last few weeks, the pitch clock, the bigger bases, the defensive shifts. Tom, I'm going to start with you. Early thoughts on uh, these new rules. Yeah, I think, you know, it's panning out well for the league so far. 
I think, you know, the players are still kind of adjusting to it, but we're seeing how these rule changes are kind of panning out and affecting players on a smaller sample size right now. So um, once we see more and once uh, more players uh, make different sort of sorts of violations and things of sorts of like that, it's going to be interesting because we've already seen Shohei Otani, I believe, be the first player to uh, have violations in the same game. Uh, pitching now, obviously, and uh, in the batter's box for the uh, pitch clock. So you see different interesting little factoids like that now um, that stand out. And uh, obviously only Shohei Otani is going to be on that list, but it's just another interesting kind of part of uh, these role changes and how um, people are now keep keeping track of them in terms of like how many violations uh, players get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen Manny Machado get ejected. We've seen Tim Anderson get ejected because of uh, issues with the pitch clock violations. Dan, what are your thoughts about how these new rules have played out here within the first week of the season? It's interesting because I was someone who was kind of against the pitch clock, but then after watching the Astros-White Sox game, I was like, I actually kind of like it because um, it's interesting because when you're watching it live, like you can see the pitcher's rhythm and how they how they throw based off of the clock timing. So like Clevenger, he would take the clock down to two before he would get, you know, his his uh, his stance going and get his pitch off. Whereas Garcia would go a little bit faster based off of the angles. So I don't know if that affects like. A hitter's timing more knowing that like they can judge a pitcher based off of like okay i know i i know he's going to get the ball off at the ball off of his hand at around two seconds ish around there but um i thought it was great because it allows i think it allows the pitcher to get into rhythm but also the batter can judge the balls a lot easier because it's, it's there's less like unpredictability behind um the game but i think you know it's it's a uh, having that pitch clock there watching it live I thought it was great. You know, those new rules, like you said, and I think there's going to be a lot of adjustments. I mean, you saw, you know, Manny Machado getting ejected, all these different things going on. But I think over time, I think more fans are going to become a fan of these different changes with the shifts, with the bigger bases, with the pitch clock. I think people are going to like it. Um, I used to hate it, especially in spring training when they had, you know, that one play, I think it was the Red Sox where one of the guys got called off for, for being in the box for too long and that ended up ending the game in the ninth when they had a chance to score. Um, you know, those obviously there's going to be changes that are going to be ironed out by the league, I think, you know, to prevent those sorts of situations from happening. But um, I, I like them. I think it's great. It speeds the game up. You know, games aren't taking as long as they used to be. And I think that's what people want ultimately is they don't want to be sitting around for too long watching a pitch go off. So I think I think it fits. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're seeing game times go down about uh, I think it's 20 minutes. Um, I think average game time last year was three hours and six minutes. I think this year it's down to two hours and 38 minutes, I think it is right now. Um, we saw Sandal Concert throw the um, throw a complete game and finish an hour and 58 minutes um, from the Miami Marlins. So we're starting to see these pitch clocks start to continue to roll um, and make games a lot quicker. I think the bigger bases have helped. We've seen stolen bases go up. We've seen offense go up with the defensive shifts. You can be a pro or a con based on how you feel about opponents' offense, opponents in terms of how well they're hitting the baseball. Um, 
and being able to create more more crowdness on the bases. All right, we're gonna move on now to the Padres. They won today, so they are back to four, uh, back to five hundred. They're now four and four after their win uh, in Atlanta today, getting to uh, survive after what was yesterday a could not get things done with two outs yesterday to say the least. But Padres are on the up and up with uh, Josh Hader locking down the save today, his second of the year. But uh, we got some good news in the minor leagues. Both Fernando Tatis Jr. and Joe Musgrove are on rehab assignments right now with Triple A El Paso. Fernando Tatis Jr. has been, uh, who's rehabbing from the suspended list, uh, began his rehab on Tuesday, so he can return as early as April 20th, so in a couple of weeks um, after the Padres have played it 20 games. And then Joe Musgrove, who uh, was who got injured during spring training after a weight room accident, went on his first rehab appearance in Sacramento on Thursday, playing for Triple El Paso against the River Cats. Musgrove went four and a third, gave up five hits, three runs, two were earned, one walk, and six strikeouts. And according to Bob Melvin, he said Joe Musgrove will make one more start in Triple A before making his season debut for the Padres. Devin, what's your reaction to knowing that? Fernando Tatis Jr. and Joe Musgrove will be uh, here with the Padres before the end of the month. I think it's great. You know, they need Musgrove. I mean, obviously, clearly the pitching's looked a little bit shaky in the past few games, so um, they need it. Uh, it's great. I know I think once Tatis comes back, I mean, I know the people are going to be partying up in the gas line. They're going to be turning up. They're going to, you know, I think uh, with him coming back, I mean, he's an icon, right? I mean, he was he was the creme of the crop in San Diego before he got suspended, and that was the one thing that everybody was looking forward to last year, right, was that, okay, you know, this team can be really good, but, oh, once Tatis comes back, that's what we're hanging our head on. Obviously, he never came back, but then they made that NLCS run. Not to get, add him to this kind of roster. I mean, are you kidding me right now? Like, it's, it is great uh, to have both of them coming back on the men, and then, obviously, you know, it's going to take some time for them to adjust, and I think that's the one thing that I think Padres fans are starting to realize is, like, have patience, right? I mean, MLB's won 62 games. You know, these guys are not going to be looking consistent consistently great every single night out. I mean, that's just impossible for them to do that. So, um, you know, I think ultimately over time, they're going to keep getting better and this team's going to keep getting better through the long run. And we're ultimately going to be, you know, where we need to be later in the year. Mm -hmm. This is a Fernando Tatis Jr. who is not only coming off of being suspended and not playing in now almost a year and a half, but he's also, Moving to a new position from shortstop to right field, he's also coming off of two surgeries, one on the wrist and one on the shoulder, Kyle. What can you expect from Fernando and Drew uh, once they return to San Diego? Yeah, I think we should expect everything we've always seen from him, which is high production. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's where it all starts for them, is for them to produce at a high level. Because this team not only needs it, but it's what's expected of them um, and the quality of uh, baseball players and just athletes in general, they are. Um, so with high expectations, um, I, I think really it's just getting this team more wins and seeing if they can compete now to win this NOS because that's the next step here that this team wants to take um, heading forward. And they definitely have the roster to do it, but they got to stay healthy, and it's got to all come together 
um, based off performance on the baseball diamond. Mm-hmm. We saw the performance yesterday of Jake Cronenworth, who had a big home run yesterday, had some clutch defensive plays, but just wasn't enough. But Jake Cronenworth, last week Saturday, him and the Padres agreed on a seven-year deal worth $80 million that starts next year. Um, Dev, what was your action in from Houston, you know, uh, with this contract extension, the theme that was for the Padres this offseason? I think it was great. I mean, you know, this is uh, this is a, again one of those cornerstone players that you you build teams around. I mean, um, is he the best player? No. Is he you know is he a guy that is going to play hard and do do the right do the dirty work for you? Yeah. So you know you need people like Jay Cronenworth on your team. These are guys that are going to you know click for you and help you be those glue guys. He is a huge get for them and. The fact that they're able to keep him long term and not lose him to an say a fellow NL NL team is a big deal because I mean in free agency anybody's gonna pounce at you and, and I'm I'm certain that NL teams would have been willing to pounce at him in free agency if they had the chance. So to lock him up for AJ Proler, it's a it's another dub to add on the list of dubs he's been getting all year long. I mean, him and Seidler just they they keep I don't know how they keep pulling it off, but it's uh it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Two All-Stars under his belt so far in his early career made his debut in 2020 during the short season with the San Diego Padres. Kyle, what was your reaction when you heard about Jake Cronenworth signing this new seven-year deal? Yeah, I honestly didn't even hear about it until I saw it here on our run sheet here that we're looking at for uh, down the line. And, you know, it's it's a really interesting deal here. I, I think it's good value for a player that, can be a long-time starter. He already has proved that. And I think what's even more important is his versatility. I mean, he can play multiple positions. He can do it at a high level. He's a good hitter. And he has all-star potential like we've seen in the past. So for Preller to pull off a deal of this caliber, like you mentioned, Devin, I mean, yet again, he does it. I don't know how, but he's continuing to prove why he's the best GM in all of baseball. And the Padres are making moves to keep guys uh, there in the long term so that they can sustain some success. Mm-hmm. We think about Jake Cronworth, the value that he brings. You mentioned that utility. He's also going to say that he can pitch too, and he's got that notion that he has struck out a former MVP in Mookie Bet. All right, um, we go to another infielder. Um, infielder Hassan Kim recorded his first career walk-off home run on Monday night to make that night a little bit more positive despite the Aztecs losing. That came a 5-4 to four win over Arizona per Optus stats. The Padres are the first team in Major League Baseball history to walk off on back-to-back homers by their number 8 and number 9 hitters. Um Kyle, what was your reaction? I know Devin kind of was more focused in Houston, but Kyle, what was your reaction when you heard about this with um, with David Dahl getting that first home run to kick off that ninth inning? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge moment, obviously, for the Padres to get some early season momentum, get that win, um, especially after the start that they had. Um, facing the D-backs, this is a great opportunity for them to do so, and they pulled it off. But in terms of the stat, back-to-back home runs uh, that led to a walk-off by eight and nine hitters, 
the Padres now being the first team to ever do that is a very random stat. I don't know how they came up with that, but I can say that about a lot of different sets that are featured nowadays too. So um, definitely a cool moment for Hassan Kim and David Dahl as well. And uh, that's teamwork right there. That's a really good early season win. Devin, when did you hear about um, the walk-off win? I was I was at Petco, so I was kind of on track of it. But Devin, how did when did you hear about this, and what was your reaction? Um, I didn't hear about it until after I came back to my Airbnb from the from the stadium. I walk, you know. Luckily for us, our Airbnb was like a 12-minute walk from NRG Stadium, so it was great. Um, we walked back after the loss, and again, I wasn't even feeling sad after the Isaac loss. I was just more proud and happy to be there. Um, but yeah, and then I see that and then I was like, wow, like Hassan Kim, like, you know, to see him do that. I mean, wow. I mean, don't, you don't expect that from a guy like him. Like usually he strikes out or, you know, gets a base hit or some, you know, RBI, but wow. Walk off home run, big deal, big deal, big deal, big deal. So, um, it was just, it was great to see, you know, made me, made me, made my, uh, you know, kind of, kind of smile turn into a big, bigger smile with, uh, seeing the Padres get the dub. So, um, it was it was nice. It was fitting, I think, for for San Diego. You know, you get a chance at the Natty, and then the Padres went on a walk off. It ain't, it ain't too bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they won that game five to four over the Arizona Diamondbacks. We think about some of the newcomers for this team, some of the newcomers to the rotation that has had some success. Mike Waka, he threw six innings last week, Saturday against the Rockies. He got the win, six innings, gave up six hits, gave up four earned runs, but. Um, one of those came on a home run, but still was able to get in the win column. You think about Seth Lugo, who is a little bit more dominant than Michael Waka on the following day. Seven innings for him, four hits, one earned. That was just on a home run, so just one bad pitch. Struck out seven, and you think about Xander Rogart, but he's been able to do so far. His first six games during that first homestand, nine for 22 with a hit. And in each of those six games, three homers, seven RBIs. Five runs scored for an on-base plus slugging percentage of 1,395. Kyle, what are your thoughts about seeing some of these new Padres so far? Yeah, I mean, no idea Michael Waka was even on the Padres. So for him to show up and be a nice veteran piece of this rotation, kind of be on the back end, uh, it, it, wherever they need him ultimately is great for this team. I mean, they've stacked up on depth. They've had a lot of veterans. I know that Nelson Cruz has started a couple games as well, so he's being an integral part of this lineup, batting cleanup um, on occasion. Um, so it's good that they're getting this depth. Um, they're getting a lot of veteran experience too. I think um, I even saw Rugned Odor yep. on this roster, yeah. and that was completely random to me. So. Um, Padres loan up on veterans, but it, it's working, and um, they're continuing to bruise, and they're going to get a couple of guys back, and Tatis, like we talked about earlier, and uh, Joe Musgrove, that's going to kind of just add to this party. Devin, thoughts about the newcomers um, so far? I think they've been, pretty, they've been pretty solid. I mean, Bogarts obviously played well in opening day, right? I mean, he had that, and then he, he hit that big bomb the other day, so... Um, you know he's 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 kind of getting there. He's getting there. Same same goes for uh, uh, Michael Walker. But it was great to see Lugo go seven innings with seven strikeouts against the Rockies. I mean that was 
you know, we were that was one of the questions hopping into the offseason was, okay, they got Seth Lugo. You know, he's been pretty good as a reliever, and he has aspirations of being a starter, but can he do that if we give him the workload? This is his first shot at that, He, you know, and he did pretty well. So I wouldn't be surprised to see if they build on that, you know, going into these next few games, going into these next few starts. Um, I think these newcomers are going to keep getting better. You know, like I said, it takes time to, to adapt to a new team, to a new club, to a new culture and build up into that to get to that feeling of where you're feeling like yourself. Um, you know, it happened to a lot of the studs that, you know, are playing right now with, with Soto, with Machado, with Tatis, um, with Snell. So I think it's ultimately going to be the same for these newcomers too. Michael Walker and Seth Lou are slated to pitch in Truist Park this weekend, tomorrow, um, and Sunday. Uh, I think Seth Lou goes throwing for Sunday night on Sunday night baseball and ESPN between the Braves and uh, the Padres. All right, we're going to move up to the five freeway where the Angels. Uh, some news surrounding the Angels. For the biggest news is their third baseman. And Anthony Rendon, no, it's not Shohei Otani. It's not Mike Trout being the big piece of news so far this year. But it's Anthony Rendon, who's been suspended five games by Major League Baseball after his incident with a fan in Oakland. Kyle, your reaction? Yeah, it's just a really stupid move. Uh, you know, I kind of figured the Angels would be without Anthony Rendon at some point this season, you know. Maybe a little early on. Not this early. Um, typically, it's because of injury. In this case, it's because of his behavior. So uh, hopefully he learns from it and uh, he, he takes it in stride. And, and they need him as a part of this lineup. And they need him to reach back and, and just get to back to those 2019 levels of production. Because so far in his Angels career, we haven't seen anything really just out of him at all. I mean, 2020 was a good year for him, but other than that, it's been plagued by injuries, and this contract isn't looking very good right now. And um, for him to be suspended five games is pretty significant, especially to start a season. Devin, what was your reaction when you heard about um, what took place in Oakland with Anthony Rendon and um, the fans? I thought it was great to see that Anthony Rendon is not about that smoke. You know, I, th- I thought it was great mm-hmm. to see him... Uh, see him do something like that with a fan, you know, I know people, I know people put a negative light on it, but I mean, I think it's great. You know, fans should not be messing around with players personally like that. This goes to show you, I mean, that's not a part of fan behavior at any baseball game. You're going to get what you deserved. And ultimately that's what Rendon gave him. Um, I knew I was kind of concerned he was going to be suspended when I think MLB yeah. sent out a tweet saying they were investigating it or something like that. They sent out a release early, very quick. And I was like, Oh, this is not going to be good. Um, you know, it kind of sucked for Rendon but I mean you're gonna get him back luckily it's not a crazy injury like he's had the past few years injury played years I mean I think if you're Angels fans or if you're even you know the, the Angels management you'd rather lose him to a suspension than to a crazy bad injury you'll take that at this time of the year so um you know I think Rendon probably is not gonna you know apologize or not say he learned his lesson because I mean he probably would have done it again if he did it again if same, same sort of thing happened but ultimately uh like I said big lesson you can't if you're a fan. You cannot engage or mess with players like that. I mean, you're going to ultimately get what you deserve to get, which is that players are going to confront you and, you know, may end up, you know, engaging in these types of situations. So if you're a fan, just stay out of it. Stay out of it. You're there to watch the game. Mm-hmm. Today is the Angels' home opener. We saw Vlad Guerrero Jr. 
in Anaheim, uh, we also saw his father, Vlad Guerrero Sr., throw out the first pitch in his Angels attire. Um, and then those two, along with Mike Trout, took a photo. Um, so you got a Hall of Famer with possibly two future Hall of Famers in it, that photo. Tyler, how, how much excitement is there for a home, home opener like Anaheim where with the way um, Angels walk into the ballpark with the red carpet? Yeah, I mean, it's really cool, especially – you know, the opening day festivities, always at the Big A. Um, I've never been to one, but from what I've been told, it's always just such a special atmosphere. And when you have that, like you mentioned, for example, that red carpet just kind of adds to it and just kind of confirms the essence of what opening day means to baseball, to these players, to these teams. And so um, for the team to kind of take part in that here tonight, it's really exciting. It's been a uh, good game so far from the Angels, like you mentioned. Um, they are playing the Blue Jays right now. It's currently 3-1. to one. Mike Trout hit a home run earlier. Um, he added another RBI. Not sure what that was from. Uh, or actually, that was from his home run. But David Fletcher added an RBI. Um, I think it might have been a sack fly. Patrick Sandoval, six innings, uh, one earned run. Just two strikeouts, but, again, only allowing one run is a really solid performance for him. And this Angels team looks good. If they can keep it up and hold on to this win, they're going to have win number five on the season, which I think would be another pretty significant start, just like they had last season. Now the difference is, can they keep it up, or is it going to be all the same? Yeah, that that sacrifice by David Fletcher was a bunt that was reviewed and. The call stood, which led to a run for the Angels, and where we currently stand at three to one in the seventh inning here, um, as we approach nine o'clock. Devin, when you think about this Angels team, uh, I know Kyle mentioned they could be a wild card team this year. How far do you see this Angels team going here in 2023? I think they could be a wild card team. I don't see why not. I mean, um, they got the talent, and like you said, they've had the talent for the past few years. Can they put it together? I mean, I don't know. But I mean, it's pretty cool to see that they got this samurai jack helmet going on in the bullpen. I mean, that or the, in the dugout. I mean, I think that's pretty cool. You know, the Kings got the whole beam thing. The Padres had the chain thing. Um, I think it's fitting. You know, UNLV with the slot machine. I think you need something to kind of build around. Maybe the samurai jack helmet is the is the the anchor point with the rally monkey that helped the Angels plummet their or or uh, parachute their way into a wild card berth. I think that's a um, you know, I think it's a realistic option for them to be a possible wild card team. I mean, you know, this is a team that hasn't been in the playoffs for quite a while. They have some of the best players in the league, so I don't get why, you know, what's been the reason they're not clicking. Not a lot of reasons, but um, I think they can. I think they can. I don't see why not. I mean, have some faith. You got to have some faith if you're living in the OC. So, um, yeah, I would say why not be a wild card team? Mm-hmm. All right, we're gonna move on now to some NFL. And uh, some couple of news that we got to get um, that we're going to get to. The Tennessee Titans are extending defensive lineman Jeffrey Simmons to a four-year deal, a mega deal worth ninety-four million dollars, with sixty-six million in guarantee. The twenty-five-year-old making some money. Kyle, what was your reaction when you heard this move? Yeah, it kind of went under the radar almost. This uh, deal did, um, but I was surprised. I thought it was a good one. 
And again, like you mentioned, he's just 25, so he's already been so good so early on in his career. We've seen him improve year by year. And for him to already be out of his rookie deal and, and get this extension is massive for this organization. They're giving up a lot of money to keep him. So they clearly believe in him. And we're going to see if he's going to be able to earn one uh, that's maybe even bigger after this extension expires. Because by that point, he'll be 29 years old in the prime of his career. And we know that uh, interior defensive linemen, some of them can play at a high level as they age. So it's, it's a really good investment here, I think, by the Titans. And he's already shown why he's deserving of this contract early on in his career. Mm-hmm. Devin thoughts about the Titans extending and uh, continuing to keep their one of their top defensive linemen. I think it's great. You know, if I'm if I'm Jeffrey Simmons, hey, get your bag, bro. I mean, that's uh, it's it's fantastic for him. Um, you know, I think it's great that the Titans are are keeping their you know keystone players. They've lost quite a few players. I mean, AJ Brown. Um, you know, they they made some you know kind of trades and some free agency signs that have been kind of eh. So. Um, you know, you want to keep players that help you win. Jeffrey Simmons is one of those guys. Now they got to make sure that they can, you know, use some of that money on the other side of the ball and help improve on that end, which, which, I mean, there's time for that, but, um, it's a huge deal. I mean, Jeffrey Simmons, you know, is going to be a very good defensive lineman. He already is a good defensive lineman. And you, and the problem is, is you cannot find a lot of those type of guys in the draft very often because a lot of them, you know, like I said, durability is a big factor and he's going to be heading into like, Kyle said 29 years old by the time this deal ends he's gonna have I mean probably heading into the peak of his career so he has a chance of really really doing a lot of damage earning a lot of money um in the long run so I think it's great I think it's great for them it's great for him uh great to see you know the youngin get his bag so um you know all love to him great for the Titans great signing Mm -hmm. one other move came out of the Kansas City Chiefs you know we're about one month into the new season for the National Football League, the Kansas City Chiefs, they agreed to a deal with former New York Giants wide receiver Richie James. The terms have not been disclosed yet. Um, how was your thoughts about this move? Yeah, I think this is a deal that another, you know, kind of one of those deals that went under the radar yet again. Um, Richie James is a good ball player. I mean, he proved it in San Francisco. That's why he ended up in New York and he signed with the Giants. They had a lot of injuries at wide receiver. And that's kind of why he got his chance. And for, I think, a good three or four games last season, he performed very well. I mean, you could have used him as a fantasy flyer. He would have been very serviceable for you. And he's really quick. He's got good footwork. Mm-hmm. Got good hands too. Not the biggest wide receiver, obviously, but he can line up anywhere and he can really make some plays. So um, when you consider the gadget type players that Kansas City has and the depth they want to continue to add in their wide receiver room, this is a good way to do it. And bringing him in kind of makes the Kansas City offense a little more dangerous, especially in a slot receiver position because they've already had Juju Smith-Schuster sign elsewhere this offseason. Devin, thoughts about the Chiefs um, bolstering their wide receiver uh, wide receiver room with um, this move? I think it's great. You know, I, I think the Chiefs have thrived with, and you saw that last year, with getting these receivers that really fit system, 
rather than just looking based off of talent. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, you have four touchdowns, but he's a guy that is fast. He's quick. He's got good footwork in a system like Andy Reid's system um, where wide receivers are used all over the field in different types of positions and different types of slots. We're running different routes. When you got a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, compare that to Daniel Jones last year, this is a major upgrade for him. So, um, you know, it's it's great to see for Richie James. I'm intrigued to see how they use a guy like him because with the way that the intricacies of their offense work, you never know where he's going to go. So I'm, it's exciting. I'm excited to see what else the Chiefs get. They got a lot of, you know, they need some more, the more depth that you can get in skill positions, the better, you know, it helps you win in this league. So it's uh, great to see. All right. One more segment that we are going to get to, we're going to get to some trivia. We've done this in the past with some, uh, doing some MLB. I can't remember if Devin was doing this with us, but we're going to do our little segment of a trivia of one player who, this one involving the NBA, involving both Kyle and Devin. Are you guys ready? Yeah. All right. One player, one NBA player who you would want to take the last shot in a tie ball game in the final seconds. Mm-hmm. This is a good one. Um, I'd probably say Damian Lillard. Okay. Well, that's a good one. I didn't even think about Damian Lillard. <laughs> I think for me, I'd probably say, I'd say Steph Curry. Why not? I'm yeah. Steph Curry. Yep. So many players that you can go with. Uh, with that one. Mm-hmm. Kevin Durant, LeBron James, put Jason Tatum in that mix as well. Yeah. Um, many different names. All right. Number two. One player who you think will be uh, this year's NBA MVP. I got to say Joel Embiid. I think he's put together a really good season. I think he has outplayed Nikola Jokic. I think, you know, it was great to see Jokic get those back-to-back MVPs. But when you think about Joel Embiid's stats from the season, that's what stands out. I mean, his second-to-last game that in which he played in the season, he dropped 52 points, 13 boards, and, I mean, it just goes to show how good he can be against the elite teams like he was in that game against the Celtics. And for a guy this large of a human being to be putting up, you know, totals of his caliber is outstanding. 33 points a game, he's putting up over 10 rebounds a game, over four assists, too. I mean, the guy is unstoppable, and he's proven it all season long. And if he doesn't win MVP, I'll be pretty shocked, to be honest. So I got Joel Embiid. Yeah, I would say, I would say uh, Joel Embiid too. I mean, he's putting up. I mean, and he was really good last year, right? He was really good last year. Jokic played even better, phenomenally. Um, and now you look at the numbers he's putting up this year for 50 points. He's putting up 45 easily every night. When you see his performance and what he can do on the basketball court. I think just based off of like the Sixers performance this year, there's no doubt in my mind that he should be winning MVP. But again, I wouldn't be surprised if Jokic won it. I mean, Jokic is a phenomenal player. He's, he's, you know, I think he's, I don't know if he's averaging a triple double, but he's getting him every other night. Um, So it wouldn't surprise me if either one of them won MVP. My pick personally would be Joel Embiid because I just think, I think he's due, right? This is his time. This is his moment. This is his, uh, time to shine. So I think Joel Embiid should be uh, your NBA MVP. I am going to agree with you guys. All right. Number three. Um, 
one player who uh, you want on your team to control the floor. Which point guard would you, you want? Ooh, point guard. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, kind of want to say Kyrie, but I don't know. That's a good one here. Um, I'll say Chris Paul as a floor operator. Why not? That's a good one. Hmm? Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, man, I kind of want to say Luca too, but nah, I don't. I don't think I'm gonna pick him here. Um, let, let, let's go with Steph Curry. I like Steph. You got see Trey Young. That could be the number one. Trey Young. Uh, but Jace Tatum in that category. Uh, um, put Fred Van Vliet in that category. Um, yeah, those are good guesses there. All right. Number four. One current head coach that you would want to coach in your team in the playoffs. Hmm. Old, old me would have said Pop, Greg Popovich, but... Yeah. He hasn't been in the playoffs in a few years, so maybe yeah. I'll go Mike Malone of the Denver Nuggets. Ooh, there you go. Mm-hmm. I like that one. Um, me Eric Spolstra. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good one, too. Steve Kerr's an option. Steve Kerr, yeah. Four rings, including the first one coming in his first year as a coach in yeah. the Bay Area. Um, Budenholzer too, and Milwaukee. Yeah, Mike Budenholzer. I'm thinking him. Yeah. Yeah, good options there. You think about Mike Brown this year, being that assistant for all those years in Golden State. Yeah. Whoever the Celtics coach's name is, I don't know what his name is. Yeah. Joe Mazzulla. All right, one final one. This is how we're gonna close things out. One NBA player who you would who you would want to talk basketball with. Oh, that's a good one. Current or former? I was thinking about this. I'm gonna let you choose. I'm gonna let you choose either or, current or former. Okay. Oh man. I would say if he was still alive. And one former. If he was still alive, I'd talk to Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Current, probably LeBron James. Hmm. Um, definitely Bill Walton's on that list though too. I would definitely want to have a conversation with Bill Walton. So those would be my players. All right, Kyle. Yeah, I was thinking LeBron for current players, but I'm gonna go on a little bit of a wild card here. I, I think he has a pretty good personality, and, and I feel like he, his experience and knowledge of the game, it would be really interesting to pick his brain. Uh, Paul George. Mm, okay. Um, and he he would be inter- kind of interesting to talk to. Um, in terms of a former player. I like Kobe for sure, um, but I think I would have to go with uh, Charles Barkley. I like that. <laughs> yeah, this is difficult how you decide because it's like you got forwards, you got centers, you got yeah. Players. So that comes into play. Yep. I think for me, I think I could probably go Chris Paul as a current player. I like that. It's a good choice. Being floor general, and then I think uh, former player. I don't. I you could use any one of them to be quite honest. Any one of those players in the top seventy-five, even those who didn't make that top seventy. Yeah. Anniversary team. I mean, 
Tim Duncan would be a good choice. Yeah, Tim Duncan. Mm-hmm. Go Pau Gasol. Um, oh, yeah. Manu. Yep. Manu Ginobili. Yeah, those are all... Good Gilbert Arenas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> all right, that is going to conclude this week's episode of number 95. We thank Devin for coming on this week. Devin, you got any final words? Um, final words. I got my final four hat with me with the San Diego State logo. Still feels surreal to see this. I mean, sure. head over heels. Uh, incredible trip to Houston. I'm glad I made it back safe. Glad uh, everything went well. Um, don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Devin Watley or at, at Devin Watley 12 and then on Twitter at Devin Watley. Um, more on, uh, more episodes on the On the Record podcast coming very soon. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at On the Record Pod for the latest. That's a rule. We'll have all of our episodes and everything is available on your streaming platform of choice. Um, yeah, that's the final thoughts I have. Um, never been more happier to be a San Diego State basketball fan and alum of SDSU than right now. I mean, it's just uh, I'm blessed. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for life, honestly. Roll text. Yep. You can follow Kyle and I both on Twitter at KyleVVets at Berman Honda. We thank you for tuning in to episode number 95. We're counting down to that illustrious number 100 coming up in just a, a few more weeks. So we thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you tune in next week to another episode of Down the Line. <laughs>